Jesus encountered suffering when he was here. Now, I'm not talking about suffering on the cross, though that is true. But he encountered suffering day in and day out, knowing hunger and thirst, exhaustion. Also, suffering of others as he engaged with others. And if you're going to understand how to live in this world in any way, you need to have a way to navigate suffering. You need to have a way to navigate suffering. Every faith has a way of dealing with suffering. People in the world think about how they contemplate suffering. Because suffering is all around us. And you don't have to live long to know that at some point in your life, you will suffer. And suffer will either draw you closer to God, or you will push God away. Suffering is either something that when it happens in your life, you will use that moment to draw nearer to God, or when suffering comes, you will simply push God away. You'll push him away. We suffer relationally. We suffer emotionally, sometimes with mental health. We suffer physically. Sometimes suffering's more of a nuisance. I have sciatica. A couple of times in the last five years, I've been immobilized by it. The first time I woke up, in the, I thought I was having uh, a stroke. It was awful. It was early morning, and Amy wanted me to go to the hospital. She was going to take me. It was like five in the morning. I didn't understand she was going to take me, so I got up and drove myself to the hospital thinking I, had a, I was having a stroke. She wondered what I was thinking. I got to the hospital, and the doctor there was very unkind, and, and he said, have you met with your physician? I said, yes. What has he said? He, he said, I need to lose weight. He said, well, you have not listened. Um, I have no pity for you. Um, you need abs. I said, I need what? He said, you need abs. I said, like abs, like washboard abs? He said, yes. Yeah. So even when I was thin for years and, and, you know, I had a flat stomach, I didn't have abs. And I said to Amy right there in the room, I said, my wife doesn't want me to have abs. And she said, it'd be fine. It'd be, it'd be fine. <laughs> in fact, I was at the gym yesterday. I was there five four times this week, and uh, someone from West Highland was there, so there's now witness to the fact that I go to the gym, and I don't just carry my bike helmet around there, I actually get on a bike after and cycle home, I cycle to and from the gym. But I experience pain that runs through my body multiple times a day, and once or twice a week it will wake me up in the middle of the night. I'll actually wake up, I'll be in pain. Now, it's not immobilizing, it's just a nuisance, and so I need abs. Jens is a good friend of mine when he was in his early 30s running triathlons. Running triathlons. He had a, just a freak heart attack. He walked himself to the hospital. That's why we're good friends. He, he didn't know he was having a heart attack. I mean, thin guy, triathlon athlete, right? And, and he's got pain and he walked to the hospital and he said, you've had a heart attack. I remember we were in Sarnia and this was the day before cell phones. Well, I mean, they were probably cell phones, but we didn't have them. And I was, we were in Sarnia and I'd come back from the weekend. There's a message on my phone that said, hey, Dwayne, it's Jens. I've had a heart attack. They don't know what's caused it. They don't know if I'll have another one. And uh, they had four kids. And he's like, if, if uh, maybe three at the time, I can't remember, four. He said, if, if my kids lose me this weekend, uh, you know, can you just be kind of a godly example and man in their life? And I'm like, what? And I drove to uh, Kitchener to see him. And then it was just a few years later that his wife was in the ICU clinging for her life because she had a blood disorder that was killing her. 
And then just this last year, he's not 50 yet. They, he had a growth on his tongue, so they took out two-thirds of his tongue. They replaced his tongue with his arm, and they replaced his arm with his leg. I'm not exaggerating. I mean, he shows you this if you want to see the goriness of it all. And I remember at some point during that whole ordeal this year, he texted some of us and just said, you know, my faith in God is still strong and intact. My faith in God is still strong and intact. But that's a lot to go through, and you're not even 50 yet. He had to learn to talk again. I think of our life when we were trying to have a third child, and uh, it had been five years, and we couldn't get pregnant. And uh, we thought, well, Lord, I, I guess this is it. And then I was in Ottawa speaking, and Amy called me and said, we're pregnant. I'm like, that's awesome. And I was in Vancouver at an event where there's literally 700 people in front of me. I'm on the platform. I'm about to speak, and my phone is blowing up. And it's Amy. And I never look at my phone, but it's just blowing up. And I'm like, what's going on? She goes, I'm at an ultrasound. I'm like, there was no ultrasound schedule. She said, I went to the doctor and said, I have to go to an ultrasound because I'm, I'm quite big. I'm showing quite early. And I said, what did they say? And she said, there's more than one. I didn't like more than one what? Like, what, what are we talking about here? And she's like, there's more than one child. I said, how many more than one are we talking about here? Like, how many more? And she goes, one. I'm like, one more than one. We're talking twins. She's like, yeah. So I remember getting up in front of 700 people and saying, my parents don't know this right now. So this is our small group and your secret. I told them we were having twins. And then we found out Amy had twin-to-twin transfusion. Some of you remember this. You were praying for us as a church family. And uh, Amy would feed one twin, that twin would feed the other twin, and at some point, the twin feeding the other twin would stop doing it, and, and often those twins would both die. And so Amy was having three ultrasounds a week. I remember speaking at NBC that summer, and Amy driving back twice that week for ultrasounds. Um, and then they came at 29 weeks, one pound, 13 ounces, two pounds, nine ounces, the night they came, the doctors looked at me and said, had you been anywhere else in the world, your wife and daughters would not be alive right now. And we're not convinced your daughters will live. I remember going to see them in the ICU, not sure if they'll live or not. And then within a couple of days, Amy developed a rash on her that they didn't know what it was. And so she was not allowed in the ICU for 10 days. I could only go in by myself and see the girls. And at that time, we couldn't even touch them. We could just look. And they're here with us this morning, and they're doing great. They're smiling. Oh, do I say you just stuck your tongue out at me, Ivy? Or no? Okay. Um, they told me, they gave me permission that I could tell that. But we all go through suffering. We all go through times where it's challenging. And we need some explanation for it. Listen to this. It's just a, a gentleman that was in an interview. I don't believe in a God who allows suffering. Even if she, he, or it exists, God, maybe God exists, maybe not. If he does, he can't be trusted. Ron Rosenbaum, if God is God, he is not good. If God is good, he's not God. You can't have it both ways, especially after the Indian Ocean catastrophe. Richard Dawkins. In the universe of blind forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason to it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect 
if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Boy, that's hopeful, isn't it? I mean, what do they have to cling to? Johnny Erickson Tata, who was crippled in a diving accident decades ago, when a broken neck ambushed my life and left me a quadriplegic, I felt as though God had smashed me underfoot like a cigarette. At night, I would thrash my head on the pillow, hoping to break my neck at a higher level and thereby end my misery. And from one of our great poets of our day, Demi Lovato, I tried to talk to my piano, I tried to talk to my guitar, I talked to my imagination, I confided in alcohol. I tried and tried and tried some more. I told secrets till my voice was sore. Tired of empty conversation because no one hears me anymore. A hundred million stories and a hundred million songs. I feel stupid when I sing. Nobody's listening to me, nobody's listening. I talk to shooting stars, but they won't, but they always get it wrong. I feel stupid when I pray, so why am I praying anyway if nobody's listening? Anyone, please send me anyone. Lord, is there anyone? I need someone. Oh. Anyone, please send me anyone. Lord, is there anyone? I need someone. I need someone. And likely the worst place to be on the planet is to be an immature Christian in suffering. Is to be someone who would say they're a believer but they've never grown in their faith in Christ deeply. Listen to this from Tim Keller. And it is only as God seems more remote, a God who is all-loving, only in the abstract, not in the sense of having suffered and died for us to rescue us from evil, that he seems unbearably callous in the face of pain. In short, theism, without certainty of salvation or resurrection, is far more disillusioning in the midst of pain than is atheism. When suffering, believing in God thinly or in the abstract is worse than not believing in God at all. It's fascinating. And Jesus encounters suffering. If you have your Bible, start with me to John 9, beginning at verse 1, John 9. I'm going to read a lot of verses today, stutter stepping through it. As we come to a place where we understand suffering, knowing that many of us have gone through it emotionally, Mentally, relationally, at times physically, it's something that touches all of us. And so how does Jesus address it? Verse 1. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It was just assumed in their day that if you were suffering, it was someone's fault. It was either your fault or the fault of someone that you knew. Either someone had done this to you or you had done this to yourself. And so there's got to be someone to blame. Maybe it's karma, as they thought, and some type of payback for something you had done in a previous life. You know that one of the world's religions, their thought is karma, that if you're living a good life now, it's because you lived well in the life before, and so you're being rewarded for it. If you're living a bad life now, you're suffering a lot. You must have been pretty abysmal in the last life. And so the disciples just assume when they see this man born blind that either he did something 
or that his parents did something. Now, it's fascinating. He's born blind, and they know that. So what would they have assumed he would have done to end up being blind? But it is their assumption. Either this man or his parents sinned. Verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said. This happened so the works of God may be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when Noah can work. I am, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. They would be shocked. They would have had no category to understand Jesus' response, neither this man nor his parents sin. They'd have been like, what? Jesus, how is that possible? It had to be someone's fault. And Jesus says, no, neither this man nor his parents sinned. And then he explains a couple of things. This happened so the works of God could be displayed in his life. This has occurred because God right now is going to show up powerfully in his life. And light is about to shine. The light darkness theme that you see all through John. Jesus says, I am the light. I am the light. So this man's hearing this because he's blind, not deaf. And then after saying this, Jesus spits on the ground. So imagine this guy's just there, right? Jesus spits on the ground. He makes mud with some of his saliva. He puts it on the man's eyes. Go. He says, wash in the pool of Siloam. That means sent. The man went and washed. He came home seeing. So imagine you're the man born blind. You've just heard Jesus say that neither he nor his parents sinned. Probably a question you'd ask yourself all your life. Something people would have imposed on you all your life. And now as you're there listening to Jesus, you hear him kind of gather some pork. I mean, how much spit do you need to make mud? And try it later today. And he takes some dirt and... And the guy's probably saying to the disciples, what's he doing? And they're like, you, you, don't want, you don't want to know. Right? And then Jesus takes the mud. I mean, you know, it's a lot of spit. And he puts it on the guy's eyes. And he says, go wash. Go wash. Just so you're aware... I have no clue why. The Bible doesn't say why he did it this way. The Bible doesn't explain it to us. We can ask him one day, why the mud and spit? There's probably no fancy explanation. Jesus wanted this man to trust him. The man's taken to the pool because he's blind. Someone had to lead him there. But he goes, he obeys, he washes, and now he can see. Verse 8. So his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he just looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am that man. Then how will your eyes open, they said. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. I went, I washed, I can see. Where is this man, they said. I don't know, he said. Everyone, not everyone, a group of people begin to doubt. This couldn't be the man. How is this possible? How can he see? Surely this couldn't be him. And this debate comes about as to whether or not this is the man or not. And he says, I'm him. I was that guy sitting there begging day after day after day. 
And I was blind, but now I can see. You see, people assume that the miraculous can't occur. And so maybe there was a misdiagnosis. Maybe it was someone else. Maybe we're confused about the identity of who this guy really was. But the fact that it's a miracle, a whole group of people want to simply dismiss. They want to simply dismiss. So verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who'd been born blind. I love this. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Here we go. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, he said. I washed, now I see. The Pharisees said, some of them, this man, speaking of Jesus, is not from God. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. What? I mean, they had created all these extra rules around the Sabbath, but you can read the Levitical or the Deuteronomic law as much as you want. You are not going to find that it forbids you for making mud and putting it on someone's eyes. Not that you should do it. It just doesn't forbid it in any way. They turned again to the blind men. Um, well, sorry, others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? They're divided. Verse 17. They turned again to the blind man and said, what do you have to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he's a prophet. They still didn't believe that he had been blind and received his sight. So they sent for the man's parents. They're like, yeah, you're confused. It's not you. Can you imagine? You've been there begging every day and people are suggesting that you're not the person whose eyes have just been opened. So they say, get, get the guy's parents. Let's ask them. They ask, they said in verse 19, is this your son, they say? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it now that he can say, that he can see? We know he's our son, the parents said. We know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That's why his parents said he is of age. Ask him. I'll start at the end and work my way up a little bit in the text. Why are they afraid of the Jewish leaders? I mean, we don't understand this today because our culture is so different. When you you know, when, you, when you're starting a business, whatever that business is, and you're going to run it, you really can't count on just your friends and family to support your business. In today's day, you need to rely on the fact that people are going to come from all over to support your business. People are going to hire you. People are going to come in and buy what you have. But in their day, it was their community that supported them. It was their community that kept their livelihood going, that allowed them to be intact. And if you're kicked out of the synagogue, you're kicked out of your community, you have no livelihood, you can't survive. Because your economic wealth, your social status, is all tied to being in that community. And so when you're kicked out, you've got nothing. And so they're afraid. The parents are afraid, so they don't want to say what happened. They're interrogating them. They're interrogating the people that are there. Because the world has no category for the miraculous. Now that shouldn't surprise us. In Luke 16, Jesus is telling a parable where there's a man that was blind begging at a wealthy man's place. And we find out that the man's name that was begging is Lazarus. 
course, that's Jesus' twist in the parable. It's the only time in any parable in Scripture where someone is, a, a character in the parable is given a name. And why? Because in reality, everyone would have known the rich man's name and nobody would have known the beggar's name. So Jesus in the parable actually names the beggar as Lazarus, but doesn't name the rich man. It's a twist. It's an irony that Jesus does there. Well, the rich man first asks if Lazarus can just take a bit of water and dip it on his tongue because he's cast apart from God in hell, Hades. Um, and as, as he's waiting for final judgment, he's in agony and he wants some relief. Abraham says that can't happen. Then the man says, would you send back Lazarus to warn my five brothers? And Abraham says, what? They have the law and the prophets. And what does Jesus say that the rich man says? Well, that's not enough. But if someone comes back to life, they'll believe. And Jesus says this, they have, well, he says Abraham says it, they have the law and the prophets that they will not listen to Moses. They will not be convinced even if someone rises to life again. And so here they're discounting the miraculous. They have no category for it. It can't have happened. Jesus can't have healed a man in this way. You know, sometimes we do it today. One of the gifts God has given the church is gifts of healing. And in the book of James, God asks that the elders, when they're requested, when someone comes to the elders and says, I am ill, and they'd like to be anointed with oil and prayed for, that the elders are to come and to do so, everyone coming in faith. At James North, we practice that on a regular basis. We went to many people's homes consistently. We anointed with oil and we prayed for people. And I could give testimony today and tell stories of people that we watched God heal. And that we give testimony to this day that that night the Lord healed them. That they had a deliberating, dehabilitating disease and the Lord took it away from them. It didn't happen all the time. We prayed fervently for a man, Scott Jacks, with Alzheimer's. He and his wife started Goodness Me. And we watched him deteriorate and pass away. We prayed faithfully for Julia Brown, was 26 when she was diagnosed with cancer, and she passed away at 28. And I took part in both of their funerals. But we also watched God heal at times, because he still does that today. Well, verse 24, a second time they summon the man who's been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth. They said, we know this man, this Jesus is a sinner. The man replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But this one thing I know, I was blind, now I see. They asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've already told you, you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? That's awesome. <laughs> then they hurled insults at him. You are this fellow's disciple. We're disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to godly people who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the, man, the eyes of a man born blind. 
if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. At this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Did you catch this? Tell us the truth. He says, I am. They're asking him again to repeat what has happened, the whole encounter. He says, do you want to be his disciples? They're furious. They call themselves disciples of Moses. And then he says, surely this man must be from God. And their answer is, you're steeped in sin from birth. I remember when Julia was diagnosed with cancer at 26. And the first surgery they had, they took 14 parts of her body out to try to save her. She had started a blog called Anchor for My Soul where she talked about her journey. In the end, I believe about 200,000 people ended up reading her blog. I remember at her funeral, people coming up to me. Um, it had to be held in a forum that would hold 2,000 people. She wasn't famous. She was a teacher. But God had used her honesty about how hard it was to know that she would never get old and she could never have kids. And yet God was with her every step of the way to speak to so many people and literally dozens of people had come to faith in Christ. I don't know. I didn't get to count maybe hundreds. I mean, with that many people leading, reading her blog, possibly even thousands. She was just a powerful witness through all of that. But there were also critics. There were also skeptics. How can you still believe in God? How can you say your faith is in him? If there is God, he must have done this to you. If there is God, this is his fault. There are also all kinds of people throwing all kinds of accusations at her. When she got to speak at the Canadian Cancer Society's large fundraising banquet, at one point during the banquet, after she talked about the horror of the cancer she had, she turned to everyone and she said, but I have a Savior who suffered more than I have. And she talked about the gospel and the glory that she understood is in Christ and what that meant. And of course, there were people that wanted to come and talk to her more about her faith and others that said, you're naive, you're foolish. Curse God and die. But she didn't. Her faith only grew stronger. But it's something the world doesn't understand. You see, sometimes there's suffering because someone has caused that suffering upon another. It's oppression. We hate oppression. We call out for justice. Sometimes there's suffering because of something you've done or something someone else has done. The person themselves has caused their own suffering. And sometimes we see that and we think, well, they deserve that. And sometimes there's suffering simply because we live in a fallen world. God didn't create our world fallen. God created our world perfect. We chose to fall. We chose to fall. We chose sin. We chose that. And it spiraled the whole world into this mess because Adam and Eve sinned. Now, I know, and I may have said this a few weeks ago, I can't remember, but, you know, some people come to me and say, you know, had I been Adam in the garden, I'm like, stop right there. God's Spirit is in you, and I know you, and you're still a sinner. Had you been Adam in the garden, we'd be in a worse place somehow. <laughs> right? Don't think to yourself, had you been Adam, somehow you'd have done something differently. They were our perfect representatives, and they chose to sin. Well, verse 35, Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out, 
When he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Remember, now the man could see. Now his eyes are open. Who is he, the man said, because he didn't know who Jesus was. He just knew some guy spat on the dirt, made mud, put it on his eyes, and he walked away. He didn't get to see Jesus after that. Who is he, sir, the man asked. Tell me so I may believe in him. And Jesus said, you have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Jesus graciously reveals himself to this man, letting him know that he's the Messiah, he's the Christ. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world, so the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Lord, I believe, the man said, and he worships Jesus. Note what Jesus says. For judgment I have come into the world. Then the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. He said, those who are blind, those who can't see spiritually, I'm going to open their eyes. I'm going to show them what it means to trust me, to know me, to understand me. And there are people who think that they do see, and they're leading people astray. And they are going to become blind because they are going to say, I can't be the Messiah. I can't be the Christ. They're going to deny what God is doing. They're so entrenched in tradition. But notice what the man does. He worships Jesus. He worships him. I remember when Amy and I saw Julia the last time before she passed away, just a couple of days before her death, we went to see her. I had been praying through the whole time she had cancer that God would eradicate it. I remember two months before this happened, I was in the hospital. I took her hand to pray for her. I was praying for the eradication of her cancer, and she squeezed my hand, and she said, you don't need to pray that anymore. God's told me he's calling me home. Would you pray I would go home with a strong and powerful witness and that God would use my witness to lead many to himself? And so we're there. She's 28 years old. Her husband has to position her in a chair. Amy's weeping as this is all happening. They're putting cushions all around her to comfort her. And I simply say, Julia, how are you? And the first words out of her mouth were these, God is so good. And then she talked about her time devotionally that morning and what the Lord had said to her. And then she talked about how she'd gone to see the rock garden the day before. This was in December, and though she couldn't walk anymore, how she could just kind of tour around a bit and see it because she'd never seen it, so thankful that they made accommodation for her to do that. And she talked about his grace, and she talked about his strength, and she worshipped him. I remember when Jordan and Deanna Spolstra were in Mexico, and they prematurely had their second child, I think 20, 22 weeks. And they're there in Mexico, they're calling us, because we understood we'd had Jewel and Ivy early, but they didn't have the technology in Mexico. Their first pregnancy had gone without any, 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 any difficulty. They assumed this was fine. And they held their daughter Bethany in their arms as she passed away. And as she was doing so, Deanna just prayed, Lord, you've always granted me a deep joy. As my daughter passes in my arms, would you not take that away? I never want to be bitter. And she isn't. And she worships our God. That's what this man does. 
You see, there's sin in the world because we've spiraled the world into this mess. And sometimes suffering is caused because of our own choices. Sometimes it's caused because others have imposed it on us. And sometimes it's caused simply because we live in a sinful world. G.K. Chesterton was once asked to write an essay on what's wrong with the world. This is what he wrote. Dear sir, in response to your article, What's Wrong with the World, I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. Verse 40. So some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and are asking, what, are we blind too? That's what they're saying in response to Jesus who said, what, for judgment I have come into the world, so the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Jesus said, if you were blind, you would be guilty of sin. Uh, you would not be guilty of sin, but now that you claim you see, your guilt remains. Jesus says, you're looking at the Messiah. You're watching what I've done. You've heard my teachings, and yet you claim I'm a sinner, and you deny who I am. C.S. Lewis said this, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the Son, S-U-N, has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. So what do you do when you suffer? Can I just give you four things that are on your printout in the bulletin? Four quick things. What do you do when you suffer? The first thing you do is this, you lament. You lament. When you're struggling with something, you just cry out to God. What is, what is lament? It's, it's grieving the loss of that ability or that relationship or that future. It's pouring your heart out to God. It's just coming to him raw and saying, God, this hurts. God, this is hard. I, I mean, I remember I was running then, running around the bay and thinking, God, we've anointed people with oil and we've prayed for them fervently before and we've watched you work. God, would you save Julia? God, would you heal Julia? I remember running around the bay at times after she'd passed away, just crying out to him and saying, God, why'd you take her? God, I don't understand. You lament. Mark Vogrob, who wrote an amazing book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, says this. You might think that lament is the opposite of praise. It isn't. Instead, lament is a path to praise, that we are led through our brokenness and disappointment. The space between brokenness and God's mercy is where this song is sung. Think of lament as a transition between pain and promise. Is that not a great quote? You read through the laments of Scripture, lamentations, a number of the psalms. I mean, a couple of the songs don't, psalms don't end with hope. They just end in darkness. Because God's just honest that sometimes evil just hurts and suffering is hard. God, where are you? God, I need you. God, this hurts. God, this is hard. You just cry out to him in honesty, letting him know where you are. Secondly, you trust him. You trust God. You trust a God that you know suffered more than you. You trust a God that you know suffered more than you. Jesus went through a suffering on the cross that none of us will experience. It was both the torturous form of crucifixion as well as the wrath of the Father being poured out on him. Tim Keller says this, Jesus lost all his glory so we could be clothed in it. He was shut out so we could get access. He was bound and nailed so that we could be free. He was cast out so that we could approach. Jesus took away the only kind of suffering that can really destroy you. That is being cast away from God. Did you hear that? Jesus took away the only kind of suffering that can really destroy you. That is being cast away from God. 
He took that so that now all suffering that comes into your life will only make you great. I know I told this illustration in 2005. I wrote it down. If you remember it, I should give you a prize after, but I don't have one. In 1947, in New York City, Glenn Chambers was preparing to become a missionary to go to Ecuador. He traveled from New York to Miami, having gone through training, and they had told him at training that they were to pick out a card, make a card for their parents, and send it back to them. He had forgotten, but he had this envelope with a stamp on it addressed to his mom. So he grabbed a piece of paper that he found, a scrap piece of paper. He didn't know what the scrap piece of paper said on the other side, as far as I know, or he just ignored it. And he wrote these words, God is too kind to do anything cruel, too wise to make a mistake, too deep to explain himself. His parents had struggled with him becoming a missionary. He mailed that off to his parents. He got on the plane. And as the plane was coming over Columbia, it hit a 14,000-foot peak that it didn't see. The plane exploded. Everyone on board was killed. And Glenn was gone. And the day of his funeral, his mom got a letter. And on the one side of the piece of paper Glenn wrote was a big inscription that said, Why? And on the side that Glenn wrote, it said this. God is too kind to do anything cruel, too wise to make a mistake, too deep to explain himself. And his mom said, I simply wept and worshiped my God because he's my God. You trust him. Third, you pray. You pray. You throw yourself at God. You throw yourself upon him. You come to him asking him for relief of suffering. You come to him asking him to walk alongside of you. You come to him just crying out to him. This is movement from lament to just saying, God, I'm here and I know you're here with me. God, I need you. God, would you walk with me? God, would you be with me? This is not lament. This is praying confidently as a child of God and claiming his promises. And lastly, you hope. You hope knowing that one day the world will be restored. You hope knowing that one day you will be resurrected. It is good news. Of all the, all the religions in the world, only one believes in resurrection. It's the Christian faith, and it is the religion that is true because Christ is true. We will one day be resurrected. One day at, at the great wedding supper of the Lamb. I mean, how is heaven described for us? There will be eating and drinking and celebrating as part of worship. And there'll be no suffering, and there'll be no disease, and there'll be no pain, and doctors will be out of business. It'll be great news. Glory will be something else. But on that path to glory, as we wait for our hope, we recognize that we have trusted in a Savior who suffered. Malcolm Buckridge, contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experience that at the time seemed uh, uh, desolating and painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I have learned in my 75 years in this world that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness, whether pursued or attained. This is, of course, um, this, of course, is what the cross signifies, and it is the cross more than anything else that has called me inexorably to Christ. You see, if you're not a believer... Suffering is just meaningless. 
But when you're a believer, you can cling to him. You can cry out to him and lament. You can trust him because Jesus has suffered more than any of us and he understands. You can pray to him, oh God, I need you. And you put your hope, your certain confidence, and the recreation and restoration of his world and his people in a place where we will never experience suffering again. Johnny Erickson Tata says this, My wheelchair is the key to seeing all of this happen, especially since God's power always shows up best in weakness. So here I sit, glad that I have not been healed on the outside, but glad that I have been healed on the inside, healed from my own self-centeredness, wants, and wishes. She wrote a book on heaven years ago. If you've not read it, it is worth reading. And she talks about the glory of one day being freed from the wheels in which she's now enslaved and being able to dance in the presence of her God with all of her might. But, she says, I wouldn't take away any of this that I've gone through here because the Lord has used it to change my heart. Would you pray with me? We're thankful that you are our God. And some of us are sitting here today and we're suffering. We're in the midst of it. May we learn to lament. May we learn to trust. May we pray to you. And may we know your hope. We need you, Lord Jesus. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Over the next few weeks, we're going to take a look at Jesus encountering death. That's with Lazarus. Then the cross and the criminal on the cross. Jamie's going to preach that week after, and then I'm going to conclude this series, and then we'll move into Advent with Jesus and resurrection. And maybe there's a friend you've been praying for, for the who's your one. And this series has touched you in a way that you think, I think my friend could come and hear this. I think my family member or my colleague could come and hear this. I would encourage you to invite them out and just believe in what God could do. Yesterday when I was at the gym, the gentleman who came up to me had an accent. I asked him where he was from. He told me the Middle East. I said, how, how did God save you? He said, through the International Student Ministry in West Highland Baptist Church. God saved me. You never know whose heart God will save. From 1 Peter 1, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. That inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in that last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you've had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love, them, love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him, and you are filled with this inexpressible and glorious joy.
for you're receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Amen? Have a great day in the Lord.